Hello everybody and welcome to Galactic Yo-Yo, the podcast where Doctor Who fans share their unpopular opinions with the world and I have to deal with them. So a while since we've done an outdoor intro like this, isn't it? Wow, I just had to dodge a pigeon. Um, I am on my always motorbikes in this area. Um, I'm on my way home from Regent's Park, which feels lovely to say. I've been meeting a couple of friends there for a, um, a lager and um, some Pringles in the sun. So that was nice. I've really got onto Pringles within the last few days. Um, they're never a crisp I'd have otherwise chosen, but um, one of my friends suggested buying them recently and I, yeah, I've really got onto them. It's strange that they come in a tube though. I, yeah, I'm on my way home now. I'm gonna finish, finish up editing the podcast then, then release it. This week's podcast, as I mentioned last week, is the last in the sort of little little lot of podcasts that I'm putting out um, and it is a conversation with Erica Ensign um, who is the host or one of the hosts of um, the Verity podcast which I'm sure many of you will have heard of. I won't explain uh, too much about what the Verity podcast is now because Erica does so excellently in the, excellently in the conversation itself. Um, I'll just say that it's a fantastic Doctor Who podcast and if you haven't heard it already you should absolutely check it out but not until you've listened to this one I will say that much but yeah we, we had a little conversation about what it's like the origins of the podcast what it's like making it um, and then also about her unpopular opinion that um, the reconstructions as in the traditional slideshow telesnack style reconstructions of missing episodes are preferable to the uh, animations um, so that was interesting to talk about kind of the ways and the many ways in which we're now able to experience missing episodes of Doctor Who. And it was good also to 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 catch up with another another podcast host. Um, so I hope you enjoy. Also, if you are starved of podcast content and you want even more, um, I recently made an appearance on a, another Doctor Who podcast called Who Knew, um, which I was in episode fourteen of that, which was last week's episode. Um, a lovely guy called Josh interviewed me about um, the process of making Galactic Yo-Yo and about um, kind of, yeah, it was kind of a similar conversation to the ones I have with my guests. Um, he kind of talked to me about how I got into Doctor Who and, and all that stuff. So if you're interested, definitely check it out. I've put that in the, in the description for you. But I think that's all the admin for now. No more Galactic Yo-Yo for a little while. I don't know how long, but not too long. Uh, I'm sure the, the weeks will fly by and you'll be enjoying podcasts from me very, very soon. But until then, please enjoy this week's conversation. Live in the here and now, for God's sake. Stop thinking about future podcasts. Enjoy this week's one with my guest, Erica Ensign. It seems that I'm some kind of a galactic
and I'm already recording. I hope you don't mind. In, in Me two places. too. Yep. <laughs> Great. And sorry, how do I pronounce your surname? I just want to make sure uh, I'm getting it right before I introduce you. Sure. You would not be the first to get it wrong. It's Erica Ensign. Great. So That's what like I thought the, it was. Not, I feel vindicated yeah. now. Yeah, great. Mm-hmm. Great. So I'm here with Erica Ensign of the... Um, see, that was so seamless and the listeners don't know that I just asked you how to pronounce <laughs> your name moments <laughs> earlier. Except they will because I'll... Because <laughs> you I'll, told them. Well, yeah. And to make it endearing, I'll probably keep the first bit in anyway. Um, <laughs> um, I'm here with Erica Ensign of the Verity podcast. Doctor Who podcast hosts um, occupying the same space. Who knows what's going to happen? Um, <laughs> I guess to begin with, this is probably a question you get all the time. Um, I know it's a question I get a lot. What? Um, how did the, the Verity podcast start? Um, what is it for people who have never heard of it, although I'm sure they're few and far between if they're Doctor Who fans? Um, and ha- how does the process of making it happen? Well, so Verity Podcast is uh, like our, our quick tagline is like six smart women discussing Doctor Who. So we have six women from all across the globe uh, in what is it? I believe it's so it's six women in five time zones in four hemispheres in, on three continents. Wow. Uh, in t- Wait. Yeah, no, <laughs> two hemispheres. Anyway, I had like this really cute thing worked out that I had like used in a couple of places and then I realized yeah I can't actually remember that but it was a nice you know like six five four three two and then talking about one thing Doctor right. Who yeah yeah that's neat I like three it con- mm-hmm. two hemispheres I think that's what it was anyway anyway uh, it's it's adorable and so are we as a podcast uh we uh we talk about th- all things Doctor Who we mostly cover the televised tv show sure. and every year we have a theme this year's theme is uh it's 2020 wonderful uh, because 2020 was kind of (laughs) crappy i don't know if that's the case for everybody listening but you know global pandemic and all not so fun so we decided to lean into things that we if you're a coronavirus molecule then it's it was a great year for you but aside from that pretty much everybody else had a bad time Mm -hmm. yeah Yep. So so this year our theme is is just doing things that we enjoy about Doctor Who, comfort things, underrated gems, like that that sort of uh that sort of thing. We, in the past we've done like villains. We had a year of the Doctor where we did try to figure out representative episodes for each Doctor. We've done a year focusing mm. on women in Doctor Who because our remit really is to you know, if we're going to do an episode about a Doctor Who creator, it's we try to focus on the the women who made Doctor Who happen. And there were definitely some, although not nearly as many as there are men, sure. uh, unfortunately. Uh, but that is that is sort of our remit is to when we first got started, it was, oh, my God, like nine years ago, <laughs> something the, the, the mists of time way back mm. when. And at that time, I believe there was only one podcast that was a doctor there were still like 80 doctor who podcasts but there was only one of them that was all women mm. and it was uh it was like a sciencey podcast it was uh okay. two women who were scientists and they were really more focused on the science of doctor who not like the entire thing so that sounds great though yeah, yeah. uh and uh, i think their sound quality wasn't the best but it was the early days of of uh mass podcasting so yeah. you know you gotta but uh, we, uh, so my friend Deb Stanish, who is now my Verity co-host, uh, I knew her from Doctor Who conventions and Doctor Who podcast fan Twitter. And she 
commonly had a refrain like in the bar at Gallifrey One that, you know, some of the Doctor Who podcasts out there are just they're great, but we don't have any with women. And that really sucks. And it's just not fair. And eventually, you know, she had complained about this a lot of times and uh, she had complained about it to a lot of people, not just me. And I think one day she was complaining about it on Twitter. And uh, Michael D. Thomas, who is the husband of Lynn Thomas, who's another one of our, our verities, he, uh, you know, in this conversation on Twitter, uh, became Mr. Instigator. He's very good at being an instigator on Twitter. And uh, he piped up with a tweet saying, hey, Deb, why don't you put your money where your mouth is and just make a freaking <laughs> podcast? Uh, I think I think you could probably find some help from. And then he proceeded to tag five other women in this, this Twitter post and... It was the people who eventually became Verity because like before, I mean, that tweet had gone out and Deb and I literally had direct messages to each other cross in the ether of me right. saying, if you want to do a podcast, I know how to press all the buttons and do all the record, yeah, yeah. Like, recording tech stuff. And she was saying, I would love to do a podcast, but I don't know how to do any recording or tech stuff. So the two of us it's a match almost made in immediately... Heaven. Yeah, it was so perfect. And then the, you know, she was like, what do you think of these other people? And I was like, of the ones that I already know, I think they're fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, because I already knew Kat Griffiths, um, her partner, Chris, is Chris Burgess is one of the co-hosts of Radio Free Scarrow, who, which is also co-hosted by my spouse Stephen Stefanski. So I mean, it's it's kind of an incestuous world, the uh, the, the Doctor Who podcasting community in some ways, and. Um, I already knew her. I kind of knew Lynn. I had already met her a little bit. I did not know uh, Tansy Rayner Roberts. She is the one that I person that I still have not met yet in person. She lives in uh, Hobart, Tasmania, Australia. Right. So she doesn't get to this side of the globe all that often. Um, but Liz Miles had mm. already met her at um, a Worldcon or something like that. And she had heard some. Uh, Australian conventions. So Liz knew her. Deb knew Liz really well. Um, I think I only knew Liz from the internet at that point. I had not actually met her. Um, so basically just there were enough connections between us that d both Deb and I were like thumbs up to all of these people that Michael had suggested. And everybody said yes. Um, some with more trepidation than others because Kat was the only, uh, Kat and Lynn were the only two who had podcasting experience um, before that. I had mm. only done guest spots on podcasts, but I went to college for radio, television, and film. So I felt really comfortable behind the mic, um, like the basically the other side of the mic i mean yeah. not, not talking into it um and yeah that's that's how it started and it has i feel like we have gotten a lot more comfortable as podcasters and comfortable with each other's you know voices and foibles there's a lot less talking over each other now than there was nine years ago but it's really still the same podcast it hasn't like changed very much at all we've stuck to our remit we've stuck to our schedule we've stuck to the way that we we mostly do things and and it's it's been just fantastic and it's not all six of you every episode oh god no if, yes if that's I'm a right. good point yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. does that help oh. with the because i was going to say with all of these with everybody living all over the planet and um you keep into such a strict schedule and um everything like that it must be um helpful for the logistical side that all six of you are not in every episode yes uh, so at the, at the start it was deb and i were on every episode because i needed to be the tech person and deb mm. is she's our host she's our moderator she's like the the sun with 
you know, that we revolve around when sure. it comes to the podcast. Um, and I have actually taken a step back from that. At the beginning of 2020, I decided that I was, because I also do a whole lot of other podcasts, like mm. too many. Um, and and I was just getting stretched really thin. And by this time, Deb is, she's a pro. Like she understands how to do the recording side of things. She still doesn't edit, which is fine. Um, but but she can handle that. So, so now it's basically Deb is on every episode and the other five of us rotate in and out. And Deb and I, like we had a call where we did math. We got like this rotation figured out so that everybody gets to be on roughly the same number. Well, exactly the same number of episodes, assuming, assuming you show up for everyone. And because we have two different types of episodes, episodes we drop we have sort of like our, our full episode which is usually an hour to an hour and a half diving into an episode of Doctor Who or a theme or a topic and then we have what we refer to as extras which are and we flip them every other week roughly um, extras are usually sillier shorter you know half an hour 40 minutes usually it's a, a silly game related to Doctor Who or something ridiculous or us just talking about random nonsense topics mm. um, and it's it's also important to make sure that you know one person you know cat is not stuck talking about like doing extras all the time and never gets yeah, to do an episode true. where she dives in straight so we have a spreadsheet <clears throat> that is a thing of beauty it's is color, it color coded. coded there we go uh-huh <laughs> yep it's got it's got lines for for you know every single episode and i do the scheduling and it is it's intense sometimes trying to figure out exactly when we can can do things because yeah when tansy in tasmania and liz in kirkubrishar scotland are on the same episode we literally have one time slot in a week that works for both of them and that's when it's like usually it's 10 p.m for liz and 7 a.m for tansy Mm. and that's for me three o'clock on a saturday afternoon and it's only the one day because because otherwise it would not be a weekend for tansy and it's 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 complicated, but uh, but there are usually just four of us uh, on an episode, unless it's something like a Christmas special or one of our anniversary specials or something. And, and those rare occasions, we will try to get all six of us. Sure. And that's fun because we all get to talk to each other. But it also like everybody's a lot more restrained because we're really trying not to talk over each other. So it's not quite the same relaxed vibe that you get on an episode with just three or four of us. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I the logistical side is hard enough for me and I'm one person uh, you know <laughs> trying to organize podcasts with one other person once a fortnight so I, I can i dread to think what it must be like um oh yeah i schedule about six weeks out just to make sure that we have lots of cushion time yeah yeah every, every year has a theme then and that really interests me because I, I don't know if it were me i would i think i would be so nervous when selecting that theme at the start of each year because it's <laughs> such that's such a long-term commitment um I guess the themes are loose enough that you're that mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like too much of a restriction maybe but yeah it, how do you how do you land on themes and what makes a good theme for a whole year of podcasts uh, I think when we started, we were a little more narrow with our themes and we have mm. broadened quite a bit. Like, for yeah. example, a couple of years back, our theme was literally we called it seven and seven. And so we literally anything that was remotely related to the number seven fit right. <laughs> into that category. So we focused on you know, the seventh doctor. We focused on the seventh uh, series of uh new who modern who and um and then also you know if something came out in 1977 that worked if it was the seventh story in a season that worked um so so that was we we've definitely 
I don't know, loosened up in terms of themes. So like mm-hmm. this year, it's literally anything we like is fine. Um, but yeah, we like for our year of women, we had uh, little mini arcs with within the year. So we had a little mini arc about uh, competent women where there would be like four episodes in which we would choose. We would usually center it around a Doctor Who story because that's a really good way to focus a podcast and be like, OK, we are going to talk about uh, Enemy of the World. Because it's got, you know, several women characters who are super competent. Mm. And we're going to focus our discussion on that episode. Everybody watches it and comes ready to talk about it. And then it can also branch out and be like, oh, I also really love Nissa because she's super competent at sciencey stuff. You know, that that sort of thing. So the 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 uh, discussion can kind of go anywhere, but it starts with one Doctor Who story. Um, our very first year was talking about the Doctors because we figured that was a good place to start as a new podcast. Mm. And we talked about which Doctor uh, or which story from a Doctor was kind of representative of that Doctor. And we didn't always agree on which story it was, but we would still all watch the same story, start with that, talk about why it did or did not work as a great representative story right. for that Doctor. What was it missing? That that kind of thing. Uh, so that's a tricky a one because it's not, it's not always the best story for that. I no. guess it's, it can be, yeah, it's <laughs> about the most representative. I would think I would find that very challenging. It, it was, and it was kind of an interesting exercise for the first year of a podcast with six people who didn't all know each other super well because that was a kind of a great Doctor Who fan icebreaker mm. to, you know, say what... And, and we didn't necessarily come to agreement on the stories before we before we sort of picked. It was like, okay, uh, Tansy's going to pick the representative story for this Doctor. Erica's going to pick the representative okay. story for that Doctor. And then on the podcast, we would discuss, you know, did Erica get it right? Yes or no? Why or why not? Uh, and it was, it was a good way to sort of learn what each of us thought about different eras of Doctor Who yeah. and what makes each Doctor, each Doctor for a single person. Because, you know, what I think is representative of the 10th Doctor is definitely not the same thing that Deb and Liz think is representative of the 10th no. Doctor. Mm-hmm. So it was really fun. Picking picking is is tough. We, Especially lately when we've all been just so busy and tired. Uh, I think we have left a lot more on poor Deb's shoulders <laughs> this the last few years. So people will sort of throw ideas at her sometimes, but she's she's the one that gets to kind of decide what is something that she can run with for a year and and fill in those blank spaces on the spreadsheet with ideas for for episodes so uh i don't remember whose idea it was to go with a year of nice comfortable fun doctor who it may have even been deb (laughs) who just kind of said you know what this sounds like a thing that would be easy to do and everybody would enjoy and when she tossed it out there as a possible idea it was unanimous everybody was like that's perfect let's do that um so so if there's ever an idea for a theme that somebody's really excited about that doesn't make it uh that would just go into the pot for a possibly a future year a future so year kinda, yeah yeah god that's such a big big commitment but as you say with the themes being so broad and 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 also because you diverge from them doing the extras episodes in between as well um i guess it, mm-hmm. it never feels never, must never feel too restrictive not too bad i mean depending on the the theme Toward the end of the year, it can get a little bit, <laughs> a little mm. bit old. Uh, so at the beginning, we're always really excited, but by the time we get to 
you know, the like the year of firsts right. was one. So we did a lot of first episodes of a, of a season and yeah, the yeah. first time the doctor did this. And uh, toward the end of the year, it was like, oh, we're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of finding things that are firsts. Let's let's move on to to something else. So usually by the time January rolls around, we're pretty we're pretty happy to, done with it. to think of something new. Mm-hmm. It's also funny that I'm talking about a year long theme being restrictive when I've had the same theme for this podcast for the last four four years <laughs> you really can do anything with podcasting if you work hard enough at it yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. um something that really interests me interested me when i was reading about your podcast um is that you said if, is that you say on the website that you don't edit the content of the conversations um Mm-mm. and as someone who makes podcasts and does edit the content of the conversations that kind of intrigued me because and sort of frightened me because I can't imagine just <laughs> putting it all out there. I mean, I assume that if somebody if somebody wants something removed, you know, if they've said <laughs> something that they felt was, uh, you know, offensive or inaccurate or it, it's there was a some kind of audio problem, then you would remove that stuff. But in terms of like, I don't know, for me, when I'm editing podcasts, the, the, the main thing I'm looking out for is am I being a total embarrassment? <laughs> and then those are the bits I hone in on. And those are the bits I chop out. And having no power to do that, I find <laughs> so bone chilling. I mean, I, I guessed it on somebody else's podcast for the first time ever this week. Um, it's not out yet. I think it comes out next week. And already I'm like, like, even as I put the phone down, I'm like, oh my God, like, what did I say? Because I was stressed <laughs> by not having the power to edit myself. Is that something mm-hmm. that has ever bothered you or any of the other hosts of Verity and... Yeah, what 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 is the choice to not edit the conversations? Where's that where's that come from that 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 choice? Well, the the origin of that choice was it was basically when we first started the podcast, we decided, you know, we had for years been having conversations about Doctor Who, you know, in the bar, in the lobby, um, you know, sometimes on on places like Twitter or LiveJournal about Doctor Who for many, many years. And our, our the idea was basically women already care about Doctor Who. We mm-hmm. care about it a lot. We're already talking about it. We want to show that off to the world. We want to display the conversations that women are having about Doctor Who because they're not always exactly the same conversations that men are having about Doctor Who. Uh, so so the idea early on was basically to take, you know, those bar conversations, preferably with less alcohol, and move them into an audio format just so that the world can can get in on it and just, you know, experience something that we were already doing. So the idea of editing for content felt like a violation of that 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 idea and that sure. premise. So we went into it, all six of us, saying we are we are not going to edit for content. We are not going to take things out. Um, so please go into this conversation knowing that you're being recorded and knowing that the words that you're saying are going to be heard by you know however many people happen to download this podcast. And everybody was fine with that off the bat. Like it's not you're you're right. It's not always easy. And I have heard from other podcasters that have the same feeling about it that you do. They're like, oh my god, that's panic worthy. Um, and yeah, t- t- we had plenty. Of of technical problems in the in the early days um so you know if, if somebody skype drops out for a while yes we will we will definitely chop that out so you're not stuck listening to you know people just you know waiting for somebody sure. else yeah. to show up yeah. um and if somebody swears like we want to keep it uh, somewhat family friendly so mm. if somebody swears i will use a sonic s- screwdriver sound effect <laughs> to to bleep them out um but that still, like, I make it, I try to edit it so that you can tell what the word is that they were right, trying okay. to say. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
But yeah, uh, unless somebody like and if we're doing an interview with somebody, which we almost never do anymore, but earlier on, we did uh, a little bit more often. Uh, so if the interview subject comes back and says, oh, I, sh- I probably wasn't supposed to say that line about, you know, whatever property I worked on. Mm-hmm. Yes, we would absolutely take that out um, if that was if that was the case. Uh, and if if anything, you know, I suppose I'm trying to think of examples of a time when one of the Verities said something that they realized was then real bad. So we had to take it out. And I, I, I can't even think of of an example Mm. so other than just the you know occasional or like if something turned out to just not be true like we said oh yeah this is going to happen tomorrow it's scheduled and then that ended up being totally wrong and the podcast hadn't come out yet maybe i would take something like that out again Mm. i can't think of an example but those are the only types of things that we would that we would pull out so really what you what you hear uh, is is what you get on on Verity. It's it's the the natural flow of a conversation. So that is one thing that I do think has changed from the beginning of the podcast to now is that it it sort of flows a little bit better because we are all better at being podcasters. We've had a lot more practice at it, and we don't have we don't have the sort of I don't want to say crutch of editing because I do enjoy editing and for other podcasts mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. do edit content wise um, but we we don't have that to fall back on so we really have to rely on the way that we talk to each other yeah I think I don't know it depends like you say it depends on the, the podcast but I think for mine crutch is definitely the word I mean it's not as if <laughs> in the early days I would record for much much longer than I do now and I would edit content depending on whether I thought it was worth hearing. Whereas now I only edit out stuff that I think is inaccurate or could be perceived badly or mm-hmm. or I'm being inarticulate or whatever. I'll edit out little bits and bobs like that. But by and large, the intent is to keep everything in. So really for me, yeah, it is. I, but I have always got that voice at the back of my head going, oh, I can take any of this out. So I don't need to worry. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a maybe, security yeah. blanket. It is a security blanket. And I think, yeah, maybe... knowing you don't have that security blanket has allowed you all to become better hosts and better public speakers and and better podcasters maybe i mean it's certainly it i don't know how much that element of it helps but certainly just podcasting in general has made me a much better public speaker a much Mm. like i'm i'm much more confident even in like my my boring day job uh i in meetings i am much less hesitant to speak and i'm totally fine giving presentations and that sort of thing and i really do credit all of that to my experience with podcasting that's great um when does your experience with doctor who begin then outside of Uh, the podcast and outside of your (laughs) yeah your your podcasting work and all that I don't actually know because I was so young. Uh, I th- I think I've figured out I was probably maybe about five years old. Um, my mom started watching it on PBS. We lived in the Milwaukee area of mm. Wisconsin in the in the U.S. and it uh, I believe she she or my dad or my uncle who was visiting at the time depending on like they're not entirely sure themselves uh somebody stumbled across a a promo for it on pbs and was like hey that looks like something you might be interested in and my mom has been a sci-fi geek for for many years she you know our, our living room and basement were full of bookshelves with all kinds of you know pulp sci-fi paperbacks and you know best uh, short stories of the hugo awards for you know this year that year the next year uh, lots of that stuff around so she was already a sci-fi fan so when this weird british show came on she started watching it and so i'm pretty sure 
she started watching when they started showing it, which would have been with uh, Tom Baker mm. in Robot, um, I assume. And I don't know if I started watching immediately or, I mean, she became a super fan real quick. She was a member of like two different Doctor Who uh, fan appreciation societies in Wisconsin. Right. And like she, you know, other well, in, kids in the 1970s, had... she was. Uh, this is 1980s, so it didn't wow, start I, in Milwaukee. They I didn't just start showing it until. Thought that something like that would exist in the U.S. in the in the 80s. Oh yeah, it was just it was male based for the most part. So right, she would yeah. get little little handmade fanzines with you know hand drawn covers and like she still has some of that stuff and it's just really really cool. And she you know other kids had parents who would sometimes go off on business trips and you know you'd be stuck at home with your mom or with your dad because the other parent was off on a business trip. No, my mom went to Doctor Who conventions. <laughs> that was what she did to get away from her children. It was always like, well, I want to go to a Doctor Who convention, and it's like, no, that's mom's. That's mommy's alone time so (laughs) she would she would go and like she went to one convention in milwaukee and got to meet tom baker and patrick troughton and she got to see bessie and god i can't remember was john pertwee there i don't even know but it was like a whole bunch of doctors colin baker was there and it was before he was even on screen as the doctor in the u.s so it's just she has like a bookmarked signed by tom baker and just like these adorable stories and yeah so for me doctor who was like a thing that was just always around when i was a kid Mm. um i weirdly enough doctor who was my first experience with death when tom baker regenerated into peter davison which you know that's a weird thing for a, a young mind to learn to comprehend death by you know you just turn into another person uh, yeah. maybe that's why i thought reincarnation was such a fascinating topic for so much of my life <laughs> i don't know uh so it was like he was just you know tom baker was like the friendly uncle that came to visit like once a week and then later in life when they we had access to two different uh, PBS channels, and they sometimes would run Doctor Who at the same time. Um, not same time, but like they'd be running it over the same stretch of months. And my mom started, you know, she bought a v- VCR and started videotaping Doctor Who. And I remember one time she ended up, like, we didn't have a lot of money, but there was one weekend where she rented a hotel room so that she could take the VCR and actually I think she rented a VCR too it was that early in the time like we didn't even own one and bought a bunch of VHS tapes and took them to this hotel so that she could record a Doctor Who marathon off of PBS because it was like the playoffs weekend and the Green Bay Packers were in the playoffs and my dad needed to watch that so like she literally got a hotel room to to tape Doctor Who and that was the first time of twice because there was a time where another city which is a little farther away their PBS station was running a Doctor Who marathon over the weekend and we couldn't get it from our house so she drove to a hotel that was halfway between our house and this other city so that she could get the signal and record more Doctor Who. That's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I come by my Doctor Who fandom honestly. Like it's in it's in my blood. My mom, as uh, on, on Verity, we refer to her as Fangirl Prime. That's uh, that's what uh, Deb gave her that nickname, and she really <laughs> really appreciates it. So yeah, she's. Has she ever appeared fan. on the podcast? She, I have asked her multiple times, and she has nicely declined every time i think she was just too nervous she's never been she's never been one for the spotlight you need uh, to surreptitiously record a conversation with her (laughs) i managed to get my sister on once yeah um, and she was she was cool but uh but yeah i i really do think i need to just like secretly record my mom if mom if you're listening just pretend you don't hear this just never do anything like that innocently start chatting with her about doctor who because 
you probably should be up for that any time and then yeah reve- reveal afterwards oh I, I, that's all on tape mum um <laughs> <laughs> i had my dad on this podcast um a couple of nice. years ago and that was really nice and but he had to had took a little bit of convincing um mm-hmm. but once yeah. once he yeah, was in the, once he was in the presenter's chair he was you know he was fine <laughs> Speaking of dads, I should also say my my dad was also a Doctor Who fan. He oh, just right. wasn't. So like I was a... imagining your mum, your dad rolling his eyes. Uh, at this no, behavior. no, no. I mean, right. He wasn't as into it as she was. Like he didn't join Doctor Who fan clubs and he didn't okay. go to the conventions. He he was like so it was kind of like that. I mean, he's a fan of Doctor Who and he always watched it and he always really enjoyed it. He's also a big sci-fi geek and was reading all of the same books and stuff as my mom like he we call him fan dad prime so like he he has he has his place there as well but uh it's kind of like the difference between being a fan and immersing yourself in fandom Mm. my mom was like you know people talk about doctor who fandom being so male back in the 80s and that really just was not ever the case i mean yeah Mm. there were plenty of of men but there were so many women who were really deeply into it and my mom was just excited about not just Doctor Who, but about the fandom and the fan works and that kind of stuff. Whereas my dad was happy to just watch the show and enjoy it. Interesting. Yeah, I think that misconception about fandom being very male does sometimes come from uh, my observation, and this is not backed up by any statistics, so I may be entirely wrong. My observation is that um, by and large, women are less inclined to put their opinions out there on things mm-hmm. like podcasts and blogs um yeah than men are and that's kind yeah, of which why is... this impression <laughs> yeah why people have this impression mm-hmm. of this male world yep which i mean and that's you know verity is a, a great example of that like i said there were 80 some doctor who podcasts already in existence when mm. we started but i don't feel like there were 80 times more male fans no, than women no, fans we just you yeah know. and especially back in you know the 80s uh you know when probably feminism was was not even as as far advanced as it is now which isn't as far as it needs to go uh i i think that yeah it's just the the women were maybe not quite as outspoken as the men were at the at the time speaking of which so you've already mentioned that the partners of some of the members of the verity team are, are hosts of radio free scarrow how does that sort of dynamic work with you being so close with the hosts of another wildly successful Doctor Who podcast. Is there a rivalry there? Is there collaboration? Like, yeah, I'm interested in that dynamic. <laughs> it's definitely more collaboration than rivalry. Honestly, mm. Radio Free Scarrow was just, oh my God, they were like all three of them, even uh, even Warren, who is not a partner of a Verity, uh, were incredibly, incredibly helpful and supportive when we first got started. I mean, I... Like I said, I already knew how to do editing. Like that wasn't a problem. But since I had never actually hosted a podcast or posted a podcast, Stephen walked me through that entire thing. Like this is how you set up an RSS feed. This is Mm. where you host. You should host your audio. Um, This is how you tag an MP3. Like so all of the the specific fiddly bits that I didn't really know about. He taught me how to do all of that because he'd been doing it for years with with RFS. And before we even launched the podcast, Stephen was kind enough to do an interview at uh, at a Chicago TARDIS Doctor Who convention with uh, the four of us that were there. It was uh, me, uh, Lynn, Liz, and Deb. And we just sat around a table and he interviewed us about this podcast that we were 
going to be launching and what we wanted to do with it. And I went back and listened to that interview not like terribly long ago. And boy, we sound real green, but we had our idea and we really stuck to it. So the things that we described in that interview that he then put out to their thousands and thousands of listeners um, is exactly what the podcast became. So I think without Radio Friscaro helping us along and lifting our voices, we probably would not have gotten uh, you know, as well known as we are in the Doctor Who landscape, because I think RFS is probably still like the, the gold standard of Doctor Who podcasting, as I think somebody said that in Doctor Who magazine once. <laughs> and it's right. stuck in my head. Okay. Um, but it, it, it's true. Like it is still sort of like the cream of the crop when it comes to uh, world impact. And yeah, I think listeners. if you've heard of one Doctor Who podcast, it's probably going to be that one is mm-hmm. the assessment yep. I would make. Um but yeah. yep. And they have always been nothing but great. And like, you know, sometimes it, it just in the household, sometimes Stephen and I will like make jokey little comments like our Patreon page has, uh, you know, more more money per episode than the Radio Friscaro <laughs> Patreon page. But we divide it six ways. They divide it three ways. So Stephen is still like way ahead of me in terms of the amount of money sure. he brings in from podcasting, which is fine because that's his entire job is basically right, as a podcaster. Right. Sure. Um, well, he has a part time job working for the uh looking for a hockey team but like i have a day job so yeah yeah it's it's less of a less of a thing so it's 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 a joke between the two of us but between the two podcasts there is absolutely no competition whatsoever it is it's just a a friendly friendly thing and you know steven has worked really hard to get more diverse voices on Mm. radio friscaro over the years as as guests so he has he has had um the verities on to to do things like review episodes or do commentaries and stuff like that. So it's it's definitely friendly. We don't have them on our podcast, of course, because we definitely stick to female voices. Mm. But uh, <laughs> so is that a hard and fast rule then with the Verity podcast? You you don't host men on the podcast at all. Yeah, that's we haven't. So just women and, and non-binary people would be mm-hmm. would be it. Although we did, I will say, we did do an April Fool's Day. There was one year when uh, the Wednesday that we drop our podcast fell on April Fool's Day in North America, and we did we did do a funny thing and, and asked some of our partners to to step in and, and help out with that. <laughs> so it was it was it was pretty hilarious, and uh, it worked out pretty nicely. Yeah, that sounds that sounds permissible. Um, yeah, I think if there was there was any serious rivalry between the two, it would it would be completely unsustainable. So I'm I'm glad to hear that there isn't that yeah. there isn't one. <laughs> the I mean, si- and honestly, honestly, uh, when we think about it, the probably the most Doctor Who podcasts person for person come out of Edmonton, Alberta, because in and mostly from this apartment, uh, because not only do we have Doctor Who uh, Faraday and Radio Free Scarrow, but Stephen has a Doctor Who podcast called The Memory Cheats. And Stephen and I together do a podcast called Lazy Doctor Who. So there's a lot of Doctor Who podcasts coming out of Edmonton. And for a while, there was another Doctor Who podcast called Doctor Hooch, uh, done by a couple of, of other people in town. And I think there might even be one other one. So weirdly enough, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada is like, you know, one of the Doctor Who podcast capitals of the world. It's a yeah, weird Doctor Who podcast hub. How strange. <laughs> yes. Um, so there are six of you already on, on Verity. Would you ever <laughs> consider adding a seventh and eighth has that ever come up, and is that would that ever be an option in the future? I think Changing it would make the lineup, it, kind of messing around with it. I think it would be more a case of if somebody decided that they needed to just completely step back, we mm. would bring in another Verity. Because uh, one thing that we realized is, you know, we 
we basically just started this podcast centered around people that, you know, Lynn and Michael already knew from the podcasting community. Lynn had already done a podcast um, called the SF Squeecast. So she was like plugged into geek podcasting. Um, and, you know, it's we're all white. We are all white middle class ladies. And if we had it to do over, I think we would definitely make our podcast more diverse. But also in scheduling, like scheduling these six people is such a nightmare that adding another person at this point would be would be difficult. Would and also more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And also we have we have developed, you know, our, our roles on the mm. podcast, so to speak, and our friendships. And uh, especially right now with the world being really, really tough, it is it's hard enough for us to do a podcast as is uh, and then adding in another voice to change things up and change the tenor would make it a little bit more difficult. So what one thing that I think we are leaning toward is as we are unable to like, if you know, if we can't get um, three people for a podcast, let's pull in another woman to, like a, to like join a guest, us. Like a guest host for the week. Exactly. Kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And we've, we have done that a few times uh, over the last year and we are definitely trying to make, make those voices not just another, you know, middle-class white lady from North America. So uh, so we are we are definitely working on it and we recognize that that is something that we sorely lack uh, in is diversity of, of voices on Verity. So we are we're, we're trying to to work on that without completely changing the podcast as it is because we don't we don't necessarily want to become a podcast that just interviews other people and has, you know, a rotating eighth, seventh or eighth chair. No. Um, because that's not that's not the podcast that we set out to create, but it's it's a push and pull because like, there's a part of me that's like oh, but you know I kind of want to do that just to to lift up other voices, but uh, instead we try to also like point out other podcasts that are doing really good work yeah, themselves, sure. like Tarbis, you know, a time mm. in relative blackness in space, like that is a podcast that is worth listening and people should go go and check it out because um, you know listening to different voices that's you know that's the reason we started verities because there were a lot of dudes talking about doctor who and we needed some women out there well guess what there's a lot of white women talking about doctor who you should go listen to some black women some women of color for sure for sure i want to just go this is very um very clumsy of me but i want to go back to your doctor who journey again for a moment because i want to ask about i know your mom and uh, a little bit your dad was kind of were kind of um, big Doctor Who fans and your mum in particular, as you said, was involved in organised fandom. When for you did that transition come of being like, okay, Doctor Who's always been part of my life, my parents are super into it, to, okay, I'm going to go to conventions now, I'm going to start connecting with other fans. It's a hobby for me now. Ah, that was a really late in life change for me. Um, I was, I think I was already in my 30s <laughs> at that point. Mm. And yeah, it uh, hmm. it started with a smartphone, <laughs> I think is how, how it came about. Um, weirdly, I was, I, I can actually remember like the genesis of this starts with my grandfather's funeral um, because I had been helping out uh 
and or maybe it was my grandmother's funeral. I was I'd been helping out uh, taking care of my grandfather after my grandma had died, and my phone and this is like four hours away from home. I was mm. up there with my family, and my phone died, and it was like an old fashioned flippy phone. And I had been thinking about getting one of those fancy new smartphones for a while, and I was just in this you know really dark emotional place, and was like, you know what, I'm gonna treat myself. So I went to I went to a store in this other town. <laughs> I wasn't even anywhere near home. And I was like, help, help, give me a smartphone. And I had, you know, it was a very nice salesperson who helped me find this smartphone. And I already had friends that were listening to podcasts, which was a thing that I knew existed. I had um, some friends in a band who had been doing a podcast since like 2005. And, but that was a thing that I would just like sit down at my computer and click a button and sit there and listen to it. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas I hadn't known like a pod catcher was a thing until, you know, this time later. So, uh, so I downloaded a pod catcher app. I don't even know what the first one was that I used, but it, um, it was like, you know, here's the button that you press to subscribe to podcasts. And I was like, Oh, well, I don't, I don't actually know what podcasts to listen to. (laughs) So, I uh, I got on Twitter, uh, and that was also like the first time I had been on Twitter. So I was only following like four or five people. And one of the people that I found fairly early, um, so I'd, I'd started following uh, the host of some just like general geekery podcast. Mm-hmm. And um, he was with the Nerdist Network. And he, at one point he tweeted, hey, uh, this guy at Functional Nerd is, is going to be joining. He's on Twitter now. You should follow him. He writes all our Doctor Who stuff. So, And that was Kyle Anderson. So I started following Kyle Anderson on Twitter. He was the Doctor Who go-to guy on Nerdist.com for, for, for Doctor Who stuff. And was just like, he was like the best Twitter follow that I had um, at that time. And he tweeted that he and and somebody else from the Nerdist were going to be on Radio Free Scarrow, on this podcast called Radio Free Scarrow uh, that was a Doctor Who podcast. And my little mind just, like, it just blew. I was like, there's a whole podcast that's just devoted to Doctor Who? Oh my god. Uh, little did I know that at the time there were already dozens and dozens mm. of them. But but I didn't know that. So I started listening to Radio Free Scarrow because Kyle was a uh, was being interviewed on it. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. There's this whole podcast that talks about Doctor Who. So I subscribed and I just started listening to it every week. And then on Twitter, Kyle would talk back and forth on Twitter with uh, with Stephen and Warren and Chris from the podcast. And I got, I, I joined Doctor Who fandom on Twitter by talking to podcasters that I, and then, you know, I discovered several other Doctor Who podcasts and started listening to them and talking to their hosts on Twitter. So it, Going to a Doctor Who con in person mm. was sort of just a natural outgrowth of that because a bunch of these people were already going to Chicago TARDIS or right, Gallifrey right, right. One. Yeah. And Chicago TARDIS was within driving distance of where I lived. So that was the first one that I went to. Um, and I had already been talking to Stephen on Twitter for, I don't know, six or eight months at that point. And he was going to be at that convention. So I was like, well, let's just, let's just see if the, the sort of chemistry that we had noticed online translated to real life. And it did. Um, and yeah, so not only did I join Doctor Who fandom and meet all of these people that I had talked to on Twitter and more uh, and develop all of these wonderful friendships, but uh, eventually I ended up, you know, getting married <laughs> to Stephen and moving to Canada. And, you know, I don't necessarily recommend Doctor Who f- podcast twitter as a way to you know like a dating app but it does work (laughs) that way occasionally 
because yeah, I know Cat well, so. also Cat also met her partner Chris through Radio Free Scaro, so it's uh, it, it can work. <laughs> right? Yes, yeah, so I'd always imagined that the that the podcast had happened after your marriage. No. So yeah, that's, we. Yeah, that's extraordinary. We met on Twitter first, and then actually, when when I met Stephen at Radio Free or at, at Chicago TARDIS for the first time. His roommate uh, was our friend Eric Stadnick, who was the mm. co-host of the Doctor Who Book Club podcast at the time. Uh, Eric eventually, like a year later, whenever it was, uh, got ordained, and he was the one to perform our actual wedding <laughs> wow. ceremony. Okay. Yeah, and he did it. And we actually got married at the Gallifrey One convention before the convention started. It was like oh. Thursday morning before the convention wow. started, and because you know Radio Friscaro was already the official podcast of that convention, so. Sure. Uh, the con runner Sean just said, "Hey, what do you need? Can I give you a conference room? Like, what what can I do for you? Can I yeah. get you a minister?" <laughs> it was so sweet. Uh, we were like, "We got a minister. We got we're, you know Eric's getting ordained. We're good there." But yeah, he gave us a, a, a one of the the rooms that is now used for I don't know what kind of random stuff at a galley. Um, but uh, but yeah, we got married in the basement of the LAX Marriott with all of our Doctor Who geek friends <laughs> there. And it was like a That's three fantastic. minute ceremony. Like it was, it was, it was really like I, we needed to get married so that I could move to Canada. It was, it right, was right, in, right. in a way a paperwork thing, but, uh, but it's, it's turned out great. You know, there's, there's certainly a, a so far happily ever after aspect to it. I'm now cycling through my hundred or so podcast guests and thinking about which might be marriage material. Um, <laughs> <laughs> cool. Should we do unpopular opinions, um, Erica? Sure. Um, you came to me with a great and popular opinion. Could you rep- repeat it to the listeners, please? So I will I will start off by saying that I recognize that in some circles, this is not an unpopular opinion. This is an opinion that I know plenty of people share. Mm-hmm. But I think maybe overall, maybe not. In, it might be in terms of like the people who listen to Doctor Who podcasts, I might be in the majority, maybe, maybe not even there. Um, but in terms of all people who are Doctor Who fans, I think I am definitely in the minority and that is when it comes to uh, missing episodes of Doctor Who uh, for for those of your listeners who aren't aware there are definitely some episodes from the 1960s that the the BBC did not keep uh, and just got rid of the master tapes so they don't exist anymore but uh, but we have the audio from them because there are a lot of Doctor Who geeks and fans out there who are even more intense than my mom and recorded the audio <laughs> off of their televisions yeah so I remember reading about a guy who took the back of his TV off to do that. Uh Uh-huh. People literally risked their (laughs) lives because, you know, (laughs) electrical workings of British televisions at the time were maybe not as safe as they are at this point. Oh, I thought it was Earth or anything. Once you do that. Uh Yeah. Like... (laughs) People were, were really intense about this. And, to, to you know, instead of some people just held the microphone up to the TV. Like I even did that when I was a little kid, sometimes with TV mm, shows, just take mm. the tape recorder and set it next to the TV. But no, there were people who wanted the most pristine audio quality they could get. So they literally wired things into the television to get this audio, which is why we know what these Doctor Who episodes sound like, even though we can't see them. Um, and It's crazy that for... someone did that on Christmas Day for the Feast of Stephen. <laughs> Like, Someone wow. on their family's doing Christmas dinner. They're in the they're in the front room getting an electric <laughs> shot from the T V. Yeah. <laughs> oh, b- bless you, Doctor Who fans from the nineteen sixties. Bless you all. Uh so we have we've had this audio for a long time and these days, like right now, we are in this sort of boom era of uh Doctor Who 
having enough clout and enough money from the BBC to do animation versions of those Doctor Who stories. And so we're getting like lots of DVDs and stuff coming out. And sometimes BBC America will even air these um, as a as a world premiere type thing or a North American premiere type thing. So we're getting animated versions of these stories that use the original audio track. And I think that that's really fantastic because it's a great accessible way to get some of these stories that you wouldn't have otherwise. I prefer the alternative, one of the alternative ways to consume these stories. And that is with something called Doctor Who Reconstructions or Recons for short, because you know, not only does Doctor Who inspire the kind of fandom that would, you know, get you to take the back of your television set off <laughs> and risk electrocution to record the audio, but there are also fans in later days who have done their best to take still photographs and maybe little clips and, you know, bits of like, you know, 12 seconds of movie yeah. footage that you have from something uh, to put together a reconstructed video version of these episodes of Doctor Who. And I will say that it was made a lot easier for some of the stories because back in the day, even starting with the very first, I believe, Doctor Who story, Wars Hussein, the director, um, hired a guy named John Kira, I believe was his name. And basically what he did is they would have a television set in the studio that was showing the the episode of, of Doctor Who. Uh, and he had a camera and that camera, like an actual like click, you know, take a photo, still photo camera. And he would take a picture every 20, 25 seconds or something like that. And these photos could then be used by the actors to like put on their their reels. Like, look, I was in this TV show. Here's me doing acting. You know, that that kind of thing. You know, still reels at the time, I guess, sure. since they're still photographs. Um, so for a lot of Doctor Who stories, we do have one picture for every 20, 25 seconds to show where the actors were standing on the set. What did the set look like? You know, where... How how are the characters moving? Because you can sort of tell, you know, in 20 seconds they went from there to there. Mm. Um, so these reconstructions often are just, you know, every 20 seconds the, the picture changes. Or sometimes, depending on who is doing the reconstruction, they will they will choose like a close-up on the doctor's face and just pop that up every time the doctor is speaking, mm. uh, which that's not my favorite kind of reconstruction. I prefer it to be a little more more strictly like this is the picture. That yeah. They, but there are some stories where they didn't have those because they, they fired that guy for a while. Uh, and so like, you know, then, then people have to get a little more creative and take pictures for magazine shoots for mm-hmm. an episode mm-hmm. or, uh, you know... Maybe just some candid pics that somebody took when they were visiting the set that day and sort of piece things yeah, together. Yeah. Um, and they are, I will say for, for your average viewer, Doctor Who recons are a slog. They are not necessarily the easiest thing to I watch. I would agree they're challenging. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing happening in front of you. You have the audio, but nothing is moving. And sometimes those pictures don't really tell you much of anything. It's just well, like, also, oh. Doctor Who from the 60s is, is very slow paced anyway. So it can, it can be a challenge mm-hmm. for, for viewers with, with modern tastes anyway to fully appreciate 60s Who. So when you're Absolutely. then taking some of the movement away and just showing it as a slideshow that yeah, it's even more of a struggle in, in, in mm-hmm. to me anyway. Yep. And there is, there's a huge swath of stories that are missing during Patrick Troughton's era, the second doctor's era. Mm. And like, you know, for anybody who says I'm going to watch all of doctor who starting from the beginning, if they are including the reconstructed stories, that is often a place where people just give up. 
and they stop because it's for a lot of people it's hard to get through the uh, the recons. Um, I, they're, they're I all guess the same <laughs> those basement the siege <laughs> troutons. I just yeah. they, it's true. It doesn't help that those stories are all sort of similar in in theme and tone in in a lot of ways. So if that's a thing that you're not into probably you're gonna you're gonna falter at that point or at least slow down whereas for me i discovered that i really really like <laughs> reconstructions and as cool as it is to have animation that you know is a way to approach storytelling that people are more comfortable with or more used to uh i i don't i don't like to watch the the animations as much as i like watching the reconstructions because for me i want to know exactly how how did they do it like even though it's just a still picture, I want to see that look on Patrick Troughton's face. I want to see what his actual face was doing. I want to see what his actual body language was with Fraser Hines. And, you know, what? how were the doctor and Jamie clinging to each other in that moment? Like, yes, you can recreate that in animation. But for me, it's not it's not what I'm there for. <laughs> so and there are certain things you can't re- recreate in animation, like the facial expressions. You can't really meaningfully recreate, mm-hmm. especially with the kind of animation that the BBC uh-huh. can the afford. budget yeah yes exactly so i much prefer watching reconstructions and i will say like we we just got the fury from the deep uh set which has the animation and i haven't actually watched any of the animation yet but i have watched a little i actually just checked in briefly on the reconstruction to see how it was put together before i did this podcast i wanted to make sure i I knew and it is it is more of the style that's just uh you know you take the the telesnap which is what they how they referred to those those pictures that john Mm -hmm. kira was taking so you know you have your your telesnap and then you wait and you can hear the audio now it seems like it's really well done. There's a little bit of a tiny bit of like animation. Like it's that's the fear from the deep is the first story where the doctor uses a sonic screwdriver. So they have a little bit of animation of the screw unscrewing and, and lifting up. Uh, so that's kind of a cute moment. So they they animate totally the photos still. themselves. Yes, exactly. Right. So it's like, it's, it is a photographic screw that turns and, and moves. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. And there's, you know, there are moments where uh, they're called sensor clips, where for for some reason, Australia was a little bit prudish about violence and they would often clip out any bits of a Doctor Who story that they thought were going to be too much for their viewers. And those did not get disposed of properly. So they still existed uh, in a lot of cases. And so sometimes we'll have like, you know, 12 seconds of something really exciting (laughs) or violent. Yeah, well, um, I know know there's sometimes bits and bobs that that have stuck around because they were played on blue peter and stuff um as well yes yeah Mm -hmm. so you do have or occasionally somebody set up an actual like you know eight millimeter camera like film Mm. camera in front of their television to tape moments or bits and pieces so sometimes there are are those that will pop up in a reconstruction so it's not necessarily entirely still but uh but my my actual favorite version of a reconstruction is one where you're, you're doing all of that with the visuals but you are technically i think illegally taking the bbc audio books version of the doctor who story and putting that uh together with it so it has all of the audio from the doctor who story so you get you know the voices of the the doctor and the companions and all the guest stars and stuff it's it's the it's the track of audio that was you know somebody Mm -hmm. risked life and limb in the 1960s to tape (laughs) off of their television Uh, so it's that version but then they also add in linking narration in the gaps 
So if you were to like, you know, buy one on Amazon or take it out from your library, the audio, uh, BBC audio version of Fury from the Deep will have somebody, I don't know, maybe Fraser Hines probably narrating, you know, in the gaps being like, the doctor crossed the room from left to right and hugged, you know, whatever. So it, it gives you a little bit more information about what is happening on the screen. And as far as I know, the BBC never gave permission to anybody to use that audio in their fan reconstructions. Mm -hmm. So you can't, you can't like, you know, legally buy a Doctor Who reconstruction that has all of that together with the work that the fans did to put pictures on the screen for you. Uh, But they're findable because the internet is, you know, it's the internet. So you can sort of find that stuff in in places. And uh, so, yeah, so we have a decent number of those downloaded. And that was the way that I consumed most of the the Patrick Troughton era is through fan-made reconstructions when possible that had linking narration. Some of them even have um, subtitles that pop up that... I was uh, just going to say, I've seen some that have, yeah, the equivalent, but it's it's written on the screen rather than uh, than, uh, narrated. Exactly. So, I mean, any version that has that little extra information about what is happening, because also camera scripts exist from Mm. this time Mm. for a lot of these stories. So that gives a lot of information about where the actors are and where the cameras need to move in order to get the action. So some of the information that's put into those subtitles or that's added to that linking narration comes from these camera scripts because they have some information about how it was at least supposed to be done when they were recording these stories in the first place. Yeah, I I think, I mean, I'm not a big um, reconstruction consumer, um, but I think my stance is that I'm I feel about the same about the animations as I do about the the more traditional reconstruction approach. Like mm-hmm. I I find it just as difficult to concentrate <laughs> yeah. on both. Do you know the 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 animation doesn't really doesn't really make it easier for me to enjoy enjoy it than the than the than just the telly snaps do. Um, mm-hmm. Because because the level of animation and this is no slight on the animators working for for the BBC at the moment, but the 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 level of animation is not animated enough to be engaging. You know, it yeah. is often very still, and the doctor's just mm-hmm. just sliding across the screen. Um, and so also, yeah, it almost feels like watching still pictures anyway. Some of that animation. Mm-hmm. Also, it's not. Like it's you can't really compare it to an animated series or a cartoon that would be created today because the animators are very limited to what they can do in terms of pacing because they have to stick oh, yeah. to the same pace as the original story. Which as well, you they said, don't, but the they've 60s, cho- but they've chosen to, which I always find interesting. They yes. could they could chop all the audio up and and make the story faster, but they don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, you'd probably end up with some like twelve-minute versions of you know, <laughs> yeah. Doctor Who episodes yeah. when you cut out all of the all of the faff. If you if you wanted to make it paced like a modern story or a modern cartoon, yep, you're right. That is something that they could do. And I think the reason that they have chosen not to do that is simply because people, like especially people like me, who like the fans would lose the their first place. minds. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. and the people who are going to spend the money on the DVDs of this and the Blu-rays of this. Yeah, Let's face yeah. it, they're the people who are the hardcore Doctor Who fans. And if you alienate them by changing, you know, like, you know, if you're getting rid of anything, mm. many Doctor Who fans are going to be upset. So I think it was a wise choice to not try to re-edit these things. And I do think if the BBC, like if they funneled enough money into this uh, as a venture, uh, then sure, it would be fun to for them to offer a version of, of each episode that is cut down and is paced a little bit more 
swiftly. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think it would actually ever be financially worth it for them because I don't think that would get any more people to buy the Yeah, the there's DVDs not really an audience Blu-rays. for it, especially. Exactly. Although I you know, I'd be interested in seeing it. Um and I do think that even if even if it's not gonna be about um cutting it down into a into a a story that's paced in a really modern way, I think there are things they could be doing that they're not like I remember watching the Power of the Daleks animation and there are long sequences where it's just a still image of the characters and some audio of like some stuff moving around and you, and they don't know what's happening so they're not able to show it on the screen and you don't really know what's happening and I do feel like there's there are moments like that that could just be excised and it wouldn't really make any difference um mm-hmm. I do sometimes yeah. find that when I'm watching them I don't know how you feel okay I think I'm enough of a a purist that I wouldn't want them to excise that because at least at least having that you know the, the random sounds in the background that you're not quite sure what they are that still tell that's still information and that's still information mm-hmm. that I find fascinating because I know something was happening they yeah. had planned something and they had you know something was going on and even if we don't know what that is anymore I want to know that there was that space for it there so that's still something that's important to me as a Doctor Who fan and you know obviously that's the thing that I'm interested in because that's basically all that like when you're watching a reconstruction that's all it is is like mm-hmm. okay every mm-hmm. 20 seconds you know what was happening uh, if you're lucky enough to have telesnaps for that story but all of the time in between the only thing that I know is like I can maybe hear the audio, but I I know something was going on there. Yeah, and yeah. even if it's even if it's lost to the ages, and I still live in hope that some of these stories will be found and we will get to see moving versions of them someday. But I was when we for Lazy Doctor Who, Stephen and I are watching all of Doctor Who starting at the beginning and you know going at our own pace through all of the stories, and we definitely had people like Paul Cornell was like, oh boy, I hope you guys I hope you guys last. So Sometimes people, you know, sort of peter out around the sensorites. <laughs> I was just like, well, we'll see. Um, and we got to the Reconstruction era, and I just, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I think there's a part of me that likes a mystery, and that's, there's a lot of mystery around the Reconstructions and the missing episodes because you don't necessarily know exactly what's happening. And I just, I think I find it f- so fascinating that there's this huge chunk of Doctor Who that you know there are still some people alive who have memories of watching it when it came out but that's you know those that number like is that diminishing getting... as yes. time goes on i remember, so i had quickly. i can remember two conversations in relation to that the first is I, I had a conversation on this podcast i think with um edward russell who said that very very few people in the world have seen every episode of doctor who mm-hmm. because you have to have seen the feast of stephen and the viewing figures were so low and it was never sent abroad so that's the one that makes it you know that's the one that makes it virtually impossible for people to have seen every episode um Mm -hmm. and then another conversation i remember having is with my dad and and his mum and he was (laughs) asking his mum if she remembers seeing any doctor who in the 60s because um he was excited by the fact that she might have missing doctor who's in her brain Um, (laughs) and she was just looking at him like i can't believe i raised you (laughs) <laughs> um, but 
Yeah, yeah actually, you... speaking, speak, you know, speaking of moms and Doctor Who, I should yeah. say that Liz's mom is a, is also an old school Doctor Who fan, and I she started watching it in the '60s. I think maybe from the actual beginning. She may not have seen every single episode, but you know, mm-hmm. she is one of the few that that has seen a lot of these stories that we no longer have any any actual access to. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The, I, the question just is: Did did she put down her turkey on Christmas Day? to watch the uh-huh. feast of Stephen. that is the that is the crucial one it really um, is what do you feel about um abridged i, mean, I think i know what your answer is going to be but abridged <laughs> reconstructions with the telly snaps because i remember watching a really good um sort of half hour version of marco polo with telly snaps that cut out loads and loads of scenes but pretty much told <laughs> the same story and I really enjoyed that. And it was a way for me to, for me as somebody who doesn't necessarily have the attention span for reconstructions, to feel like I'd experienced that story in some way without having to put myself through a process I was never going to enjoy. Mm-hmm. You know, honestly, like for me, it boils down to there is no wrong way to consume mm. Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Same same way it's like, you know, as becoming a Doctor Who fan, there's no wrong episode to be your first episode. There's no, no wrong order to watch Doctor Who in. Uh, not too many people watch it from the very beginning to the very end. That's a super rare thing. Doctor Who fandom is this, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a unicorn in that it's been happening for so long and that each story, you know, it's, it's not serialized overall in a way that makes it so that you have to watch it all in order. So... Everybody comes at it differently and every, you know, every single Doctor Who story is probably somebody's first. And I feel the same way in terms of, you know, trying to to capture and consume those missing stories. Mm-hmm. You know what? It's any way that's going to work for you, I think is fine. There are some people who, who came to love those stories through the Target novelizations. And that is yes, also for sure. a really yeah. excellent way to to consume those stories and to, to learn them and come to love them. That's probably so the foremost it's... way, actually, isn't it? That people have mm-hmm. experienced those stories when you think about it. Yeah. Well, certainly in the UK, I feel like Mm. the target novelizations were not as um, available here. Mm -hmm. So it, you know, it wasn't quite as common of a, of a thing to, to pick up. So I think, you know, probably there's a lot of people who just didn't consume those stories simply because they didn't have any access to them in any way on this continent. But I think, you know, whatever is going to work for you as a viewer or as a reader or as a listener, you know, some people prefer the the BBC audio versions, just the audio, no pictures with the linking narration. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people, some people like it. And I think it's fantastic that that cut down version of Marco Polo exists. I have, I can't, I'm not sure if I watched the whole thing, but I definitely have seen parts of it and it definitely, it cooks along. It is, mm. it is much more sort of modernly paced and you do, I think, get enough out of it to really understand that story um so you know bravo for whoever put that together because that is a great way to to get marco polo into your brain if yeah. especially if you don't want to sit through seven episodes of of a whole lot and not a lot happening which is you know that's that's a reconstruction so for me i would rather watch the entire seven episodes with with all of the sounds of all of the mm-hmm. moments um unless there was a time crunch like if i was about to do a podcast about marco polo and i didn't have time for all seven for of those sure. episodes i might do that condensed version and i would be very happy uh to do that and happy it existed but mm-hmm. if i was just like it's marco polo time i want to do marco <laughs> polo again i would sit down with you know whatever reconstruction steven tells me is the best one like as much as i love them i wouldn't say i'm a reconstruction connoisseur like i can't compare the loose canon version of the reconstruction to the 
whatever other version of the reconstruction and tell you which is the one that is better because I, I haven't dived into it quite that deeply. Yeah. Um, I, there are enough. There's enough stuff rattling around my brain. I don't need that extra <laughs> layer of information. Um, I'm happy to have somebody tell me this is the reconstruction that has linking narration and some subtitles and yeah. telesnaps. Here you go. Thanks. That's great. It's got everything you need. What What about the the possibilities raised then by the recent recreation of Mission to the Unknown, which was obviously an amazing feat from those um, UCLan students, but obviously that that treatment is more difficult to apply to other Doctor Who stories. You know, that one's kind of special because it doesn't have any of the main cast in it, which is why you right. can create it and it feels right, recreate it and it feels right. Whereas I think it would be harder to to apply that same treatment to stories starring William Hartnell and, and um, William Russell and, uh, you know, Jacqueline Hill, etc. But do you think it's worth trying that? I mean, if if there's a group of people that is into it enough that they want to do that, I say absolutely go forward mm. and and give it a shot. Um, if it, you know, if it brings even one or two more people to those stories, I think it's worth it. Especially, you know, as as long as the people who are putting in the effort are enjoying it. Like I I wouldn't want people to to be doing it just in you know in hopes of bringing in new fans, but without any actual love for it. I can't imagine anything that's done around Doctor Who fandom. It's always done with love because people just love mm. this show so much. So so I wouldn't I would never caution anybody against trying to do something like that because why not? Uh, and you know, speaking of recreating things like that, like we are. We are getting closer and closer to the point where like with deep fake technology and stuff that you can animate actual people. I mean, maybe not in my lifetime, but at some point we may have the technology to recreate those Doctor Who stories with like, you know, to make them look as close as we can get them to looking like they actually happened. You know, we we won't know. I'm not sure I would want that. You know, I think I'd I'd... I'd rather see some really good actors re-performing the story mm-hmm. than than a great deep fake of of the original actors i feel like i i feel like i feel the same way as you do but in you know 30 40 years when that technology you know exists and is common you know maybe the younger generation of that time will be so used to that as a technology that they will you know as younger kids now i'm certain most of them prefer animated versions to reconstructed versions yeah maybe there will be a whole generation of people who prefer you know deep faked versions of classic doctor who stories assuming people are still doing stuff than they would to an animated version because it's just the kind of that's the kind of technology they're used to seeing in media yeah it's possible for for me i think it wouldn't matter how good the deep fake got (laughs) i think even if it was indistinguishable from a real person that the knowledge that it was not real would mm-hmm. be enough that I would still enjoy a recreation more. I'd be interested yeah. to see some stage productions, you know, of like yes, uh, early, you know, Hartnell and Trout and Doctor Who's. And that's, I feel like that's the kind of thing that's much easier to do than it would be with, say, most modern Doctor Who stories. Like I know Midnight mm. has been done as a play because yes. that's, you know, it's yeah. a, basically a pretty much just one set that works fine whereas classic doctor who especially in the 60s was kind of a teleplay that was just filmed because yeah. you still had very much the you know it was especially 
in the UK on the BBC at the time, it was like you you do a live play and you put some cameras in front of it. And that's that's just how it works. You know, you were only allowed to cut like twice or something like that in. Uh, oh, yeah. An it episode. was closer to theater than a motion picture. Very much so. So I feel like those stories would really lend themselves themselves well to uh, a theater re not reconstruction but reenaction because mm-hmm. that's kind of what they were doing in the first place and that would be really fascinating like i would absolutely i'm not a big theater buff myself but that's the kind of thing i would totally go to yeah it's frustrating that that those sort of projects are often inhibited by copyright issues i know i know there's mm-hmm. been a, a robots of death theater production in my hometown of manchester mm. in the last few years and that midnight one as you say um took place as well but neither of those had the doctor in them for copyright reasons they had to rewrite the story ah. without without the doctor uh, and i think i'm never sure how i feel about copyright as a concept and obviously it's a massive conversation but i think that's one of the things where it's like come on like these stories are so old like would it hurt to to just let people make re- re- th- uh, theatrical recreations of them do you know what i mean i think that's mm-hmm. that's an example of copyright hurting um hurting creativity rather than helping it yeah and that's true it, it's 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 a tough it's a tough thing because yeah i like now i'm trying to imagine a version of robots of death without the doctor in it and i'm like oh that's i'm sure it was really cool but at the same time that what a challenge to try to work around that yikes yeah i'm not sure i never saw it so i'm not sure what they did instead whether they kind of replaced they i imagine they probably replaced him with a mm-hmm. similar but different enough character yeah, maybe something akin to like the the stranger that Colin Baker played in the in the wilderness years. <laughs> yes, uh, and those those kinds of productions are also limited, you know, geographically because that's you know just like they, sure. I know people. It's it's hard to get to see something. I know people who are huge Broadway fans, but like they all live in the northeast of the U.S. And it's like, nope, I <laughs> I have never been to a show on Broadway because I don't live anywhere near New York City. So wherever that play is being put on, like, you know, if it's in Edmonton, fantastic. You know, I, w- I would drive all the way, you know, the three hours to Calgary to go see something like that. But if it's somewhere I need to take a flight for, and I, obviously I'm talking about normal non-COVID times, uh, mm-hmm. then that's, you know, do I actually want to spend another $600? just to to get somewhere because Edmonton is it's a geographical oddity we're at least six hundred dollars from everywhere right (laughs) I had a question and now I've forgotten what it was (laughs) (laughs) this is the kind of thing I I excise from the podcast oh Oh, yeah I was gonna ask you um I was gonna ask you if you were being a I I know you said you weren't a reconstruction connoisseur but I'm gonna ask this as if you are one um (laughs) If you were to direct somebody who's never watched a reconstruction to a story which you feel fares really well um, in its reconstructive form, which which story would you kind of direct them to? Which missing story? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, you know, I would say simply for ease of access, if you're interested in trying out a reconstruction, I would say try one of the official ones that exists mm-hmm. on uh, like an officially released blu-ray or dvd um because then you you know you don't have to go into the dark corners of the internet to try to find one and, and download it through you know whatever BitTorrent site you're using but um 
and like I said, I haven't actually watched all of Fury, the official reconstruction of Fury from the Deep yet, because mm-hmm. it just came out. Um, but I, I think that would be a great one to start with, because first of all, that's a cracking story. It is. I love it. It is one of my favorite Doctor Who stories. It is so good. And I felt that whatever version of the reconstruction that we watched um, was great. But I feel like the official version is going to be equally competent, uh, especially based on the bits and pieces that I saw, because there are, you know, good telesnaps and the people who the people who do those DVDs and Blu-ray releases are huge, huge, huge Doctor Who fans. Mm. Everything is just yeah, done yeah, with yeah. so much love and so much care that I have a lot of faith that that reconstruction is is a really is a really good one. So I, I, that's probably the one that I would direct people toward. Or um, on the, the DVD for um, the web uh, the Web of Fear, which came out um, most of the episodes yeah, episode are actual. Th- Episode three is a reconstruction, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, So that would kind of give you a little bit of a taste of what a reconstruction looks like. If you're just curious to be like, hey, how does a reconstruction work? Mm. Then you at least have all of the other episodes of the story are moving and you can compare what these actors are doing and saying, you know, their actual motions and stuff with the the still film. um, Yeah, I've seen that one and I found it much easier when I already had a context for Mm -hmm. the reconstruction to to sit through it and, and appreciate it and enjoy it. One thing I did find um, frustrating, though, was that the, the moment the Doctor first meets the Brigadier is reconstructed. I know. It breaks um, my heart. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, on the other hand, with that one, it does sort of, like, it feels like it kind of slows the story down a little bit simply because you suddenly, bit, yeah. you don't have all of the actors moving and, and speaking and stuff so and it's a I very mean, it, it action does... story it's not really a dialogue story it's more of it a, is yeah it's it, it's sort of unfortunate that that is you know the one of all of them that is that happens well, to be Phil- missing because... Philip Morris has got it under his bed anyway we all know it right or somebody or somebody <laughs> else does because yes. the originally yeah. he he found all of them and then episode three disappeared somehow so was it some doctor who collector who was like oh my god i need to see season or episode three for myself because it has that great gunfight scene in it and sure. they just nicked it um who knows so i like i feel like it's out there somewhere and i hope someday we will get it but for now it's kind of a nice way to dip your toe into the world of reconstructions without having to sit through you know five to seven episodes of still photographs i would agree another option maybe there is is um the invasion too that's another story where Mm -hmm. some of the episodes are are animation um but not all of them and i think maybe that's maybe that's a good choice too yes yeah any any time that you can you can have a few episodes and see what the actors are doing it's it does make it a little bit easier to translate that into uh, into your head for seeing them then yeah, suddenly you've, still you've got a frame of reference haven't you already mm-hmm. and you know yeah. what the sets look like and that is something yeah. that i think is really kind of important because in those still photographs you kind of get an idea what the set is but when you see people moving around and then and also the cameras moving to give you an idea of the three dimensionality mm-hmm. of of whatever the set is uh, that is something that i do find is is really kind of missing from the strictly reconstructed stories um, yeah. because you just you you mean it's all two-dimensional and you never see the doctor doctor or companions interacting with the set so it's it's a little bit trickier to know um, but i still prefer those still photographs to mm. the animated version because you know they're just taking the the still pictures 
and drawing them out in, you know, whatever way seems to make the most sense. So I'd, I'd still yeah. rather see the picture of the real thing. One thing I found really hard, I remember when I was younger, um, me and my dad tried to listen to the BBC audio version of Power of the Daleks and we we had it on a CD and we put it on the car. And one thing both of us found really tricky was that a lot of the voices, obviously it's not designed as an audio drama and there there is that linking narration to assist that. But um, a lot of the voices of the characters sound very similar, um, the guest characters, Ah, and trying mm -hmm. to remember who is who and who is speaking at any one time was really difficult to track when I had no frame of reference for what these people look like. And also, all of the old white men in classic Doctor Who kind of look the same anyway. So even when you yeah. do know what they look like, it's not always super helpful. Mm. Um, so yeah, no, I found that I found that a particularly challenging element of the of the pure audio reconstructions. Yeah, that is one thing where so I I have strong-ish feelings about the the way that a reconstruction is put together. Some of them like I I think I said before, they will take a close-up picture of the doctor or Jamie or whomever mm-hmm. it is. And every time Jamie's speaking, they'll put that picture up. And while that is a good thing in terms of helping delineate who is speaking, because you're right, sometimes it is a little bit tricky. To me, that kind of gets under my skin a little bit because it's not true to the way that that story actually played out on yeah. television while it was could, happening. Could so, there be a like, middle ground, though, where you don't show the, the main characters, but you do show... Um, the guest characters maybe to help the audience help the audience out a little bit um, with those people yeah I mean that's that's certainly one way to do it I still would prefer like I really my my favorite is just the really strict like here was a picture that was taken at this moment and I want to like I only want to see that picture at the time that it was you know actually happening if it comes back again it's like then in my head I'm like oh wait was this picture actually from this point in the story or was the doctor making that face and that gesture at that point in the story Uh, and I know that I may be I'm maybe now very far on the purest spectrum of being like, I only want In an ideal world, happened. you'd watch it on a 60s television eating Bob <laughs> Rule for dinner <laughs> exactly. while you stay at home and your husband goes to work. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but, but you know, I like I said, there's no wrong way to, to do it. I, I'm glad that, and, and for especially for stories like... Um, the myth makers which doesn't have any telesnaps like mm. you just do what you can like and and the people who did the was it the i'm not sure if it was the loose cannon recon that we watched i'm i'm not certain um but like in some cases they just took the faces of the actors from still photos of other things that they had did which weren't even doctor who and you know put them that face into onto the body of like a Roman centurion or something like, you know, they had to get really creative. That sounds hokey. It It is. It is absolutely hokey, but it is kind of fun to just be like, wow, the people who created this reconstruction, like they did so much work to try to come up with something that is visually stimulating, even though they know it's not going to necessarily like perfectly or even a little yeah. bit <laughs> reflect what was happening on screen because we just literally don't know what but was it's, happening on it's screen. It's representative of it. I mean, that to me feels like a precursor to what people like my friend Tom Webster are doing on the big finish audio audio drama covers where you are putting mm-hmm. these act, these pictures of the act, actors from the 1970s and 80s in <laughs> costumes they've never been in, holding things yep. they were never holding. <laughs> yeah, I know one story that is like that is um, The Massacre where the doctor mm-hmm. uh, william hartnell also plays the abbot and we don't have any photos of william hartnell yeah. as the abbot like we don't even know what that looked like 
Nope. Not oh, a which clue. Which is just so. painful. It's so painful. Yeah. It is. I just I I I am not a fan of that story at all. But oh, people I love still, it, don't they? I think I've never listened do. to it or experienced it in any way, read the book or anything, but people people it's love grim. it. It is so grim. Um which is why I, I just does, does not like it's it's not something that I gravitate to. I, I prefer right. a little more comfort in my Doctor Who. No, um, I, but I'm I still exactly hope the same. I still hope they find it because I want mm. to, I want to like, I don't necessarily care about watching that story, <laughs> but I want to, I do want to watch it to see William Hartnell playing a different character. Cause I just, I need that in my, in my brain and yeah, we don't have it. Not it at all. It would be so cool to see. I, that story's always had a kind of mythic significance for me. Cause I remember being a kid and reading the discontinuity guide. Um, mm. And that cites the massacre as the best Doctor Who story, which is, Probably just like '90s Paul Cornell being contrarian, but um, <laughs> it, that always made it seem exciting to me. It's it's really funny to hear Paul talk about the, talk about that book because anytime it's a review that he currently doesn't agree with, he can just be like, "Well, that one wasn't me because <laughs> they didn't they didn't have it because well, they're not credited to specific writers. There's like three of them, but it's not it doesn't say who said what, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah. God, I know how he feels, though, because there are already... I mean, I've only been making this podcast for four years, but there are already early episodes where I'm like, I definitely don't feel like that about that X story or Y story anymore. And mm-hmm. I just hope people don't listen to those early ones. <laughs> 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 well, thank you so much for talking to me, Erica. It's been it's been great. Um, if people don't know about... your, haven't listened to Verity already, which, as I said, is extremely unlikely, um, where can they find it and where can they find you? Um on social media and on the wider web. All right. Well, um, so uh, the easiest place to find me is on my Twitter feed. I'm on Twitter probably too much at Holly Go Darkly, H-O-L-L-Y-G-O-D-A-R-K-L-Y, Holly Go Darkly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I very rarely ups- update my website with my blog, which is hollygodarkly.com. Uh, the place to really find me is on podcasts. And yes, so in addition to Verity, I, as I mentioned, also do Lazy Doctor Who with Stephen. Uh, the, the pace of that has slowed down quite a bit uh, with the global pandemic and stuff, <laughs> as, as happens. Uh, I also do a hockey podcast with Deb from Verity. We talk about hockey on a, a Beginner's Puck. It is sort of aimed at the underserved fandom of, uh, of that fandom so like with verity we were trying to lift the voices of women in doctor who podcasting we're trying to do a podcast for beginners of of hockey fandom and you know women and lgbtq and people of color who normal hockey media doesn't really seem to care that much about so that's that was sort of our goal with that one um Back sort of in the geekier sphere, I also have a podcast about uh, the show Winona Earp called Earp Chirp. That's from a very Alberta perspective. Uh, that show is set and filmed in Alberta, Canada. And okay. we come at it with the, with the lens of, of locals, basically. Um, so, for example, there was an episode where a rat appeared in it. And we learned, like pointed ac- accusingly at the screen and said, no, you can't do that because Alberta is rat free. We have no rats in Alberta. Um, fun fact. Uh, I also am close to wrapping up a podcast called Saga of Rereading Epics. Uh, a friend of mine from the Incomparable Podcast Network, Lisa Schmeiser, she and I are rereading a science fiction series from the 1970s and 80s called uh, the Saga of Pleiocene Exile and the Galactic Milieu series by Julian May, which are books that we loved as youngsters. And 
uh, are reassessing as adults. Um, it's, it's definitely fun. We're, we're close to finishing that. Uh, Stephen and I did an entire podcast about uh, The Prisoner called In the Village. We went episode by episode. Um, I also did an entire podcast about the uh, sci-fi show Babylon 5 called The Audio Guide to Babylon 5. So that is out there if you're a B5 fan. We did every episode of that. Um, I play Dungeons and Dragons on Total Party Kill on the Incomparable Podcast Network. That's on video and on audio. So if you like to watch nerds play D&D, that's a a way to do it. Um, I am a reader and producer of the Uncanny Magazine podcast, which is science fiction, short stories, and poetry and interviews. And the Incomparable Podcast Network, which I've mentioned a few times, has a bunch of shows that I am on and off. There's random silly game shows and shows about sci-fi properties and books and geeky things. And I'm just sort of all over it there. So I keep myself busy, I guess is what I'm saying. Wow. I've never known somebody to have so much to plug at the end of a podcast. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, that's so many podcasts. I can't begin to imagine what that must be like. Uh-huh. It's uh, I live and die by my Google calendar, I will say that. <laughs> and you can follow um, me on Twitter at Molly underscore Martian. You can follow the podcast on Twitter um, at Galactic Yo-Yo Pod. You can email me with all of your questions, comments, complaints um, at Galactic Yo-Yo Pod at gmail.com. Um, and actually, since um, you, Erica, have plugged some other stuff too, I'm going to do that this week, which Yay. I never normally do. Um, good, good. You can follow my poetry on Instagram at instagram.com slash poetrybitsdaily. I'm not doing daily poems at the moment, but I have historically in there uh, almost a thousand poems on there for you to enjoy. Um, wow. And uh, in December last year, I made an album called My Wings Are Like a Shield of Steel, um, which I will link to in the description as well. Um, Yay. There we go. I never talk about that stuff, but yeah, it's there. I feel <laughs> I feel honored that you chose to do it while I'm here. That's great. Oh. Uh, Well, thanks so much again, Erica. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. And bye-bye.